I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute. I still believe that we shall overcome. Long as we have faith, salvation will not be denied us. I believe in change because I believe in you. I do believe in fairies. I don't believe in Santa Claus anymore. I don't have a special word for saying why I don't believe in Santa Claus or why I don't believe in the tooth fairy. I assume that these are fairy tales, man-made fables. I don't believe in God, I believe in us, as human beings. I believe that artificial intelligence could be a real danger in the not-too-distant future. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life. But you're living in a world of make-believe, with flowers and bells and leprechauns. Look, I'm just saying that somewhere between Jesus dying on the cross and a giant bunny hiding eggs, there seems to be a, a gap of information. The good thing about science is that it's true whether or not you believe in it. Understanding beliefs requires engaging seriously with the machine that produces beliefs, which is the human mind. To me, I think the brain is basically a belief-making machine. It has to be because everything that we see on the inside is really just kind of a, an interpretation of what's out there. Our belief systems aren't entirely based on what is tangible or true. We're very gullible creatures. We want to believe that something that we can do or take will change our life for the better. My name is Joe Sorge, and welcome to Make Belief, a multi-part series that explores the complexities and mysteries of human belief. What is belief? What drives it? And how do we know what to believe and what to ignore? Beliefs shape our lives, but which ones make us happier, healthier, and more productive? These are some of the questions we'll be exploring throughout the series. What you're about to experience, we hope, will be eye-opening and mind-expanding. I've spent a good portion of my life as a scientist, questioning theories and churning out data. I've grown to appreciate the scientific method, which is evidence-based questioning and testing in order to produce some viable truth. But not everyone sees truth through that lens, and I respect that. Not all beliefs can be tested experimentally, and that makes them subject to great debates. But when these debates escalate into violent conflict, we have to ask why people put such a premium on beliefs. I started to ask such questions after reading a fascinating book by Michael Shermer called The Believing Brain. His main thesis was that people form beliefs quickly and early, then search for evidence to support their beliefs, rather than the other way around. If true, I thought that this might be an interesting quirk in human behavior that warranted further exploration. And that led me to conduct over 150 hours of interviews with some of the world's leading experts on the nature of belief. We all hope that certain beliefs will help us survive difficult experiences or overcome challenges. But some beliefs might polarize us, cause us to disagree or argue, or even worse, to start wars. The big question here is not whether holding a collection of beliefs is good or bad, but instead, how can we determine which of our beliefs are helpful and which might be harmful, and how they might impact some of the most important decisions of our lives? This first episode is just a sampling of what's to come. We'll be sprinkling this episode with quotes from various experts, philosophers, scientists, holy men and women, professors, doctors, nutritionists, politicians, survivors, health experts, and more, looking for answers. Some of our earliest beliefs begin in childhood. Let's explore this idea with Julia Galef. My name is Julia Galef, and I founded a nonprofit organization called the Center for Applied Rationality. We're based out in Berkeley, California. We talked about some of her earliest beliefs, I sort of almost believed when I was 
in elementary school in unicorns that would come down from the sky and whisk me away to a magical land in which I was loved and popular because that was not the case in my elementary school. And I had read some stories in which believing something makes it happen. So I tried believing in the unicorns really hard in hopes that they would appear in the sky. I think that just went away when I got friends. <laughs> But you were hoping. Yeah, hoping and believing can, can seem very similar on the inside. As a kid, you, you get told a lot of things about the world and you don't know what's realistic or you know, implausible. Sort of, everything sort of seems equally wondrous or normal to you. Have you ever wondered whether children should be taught fables at a very early age? We all use stories to help children learn about the world around them, but when promoted as factual, is it harmful to a child's development? I asked Rabbi David Wolpe, known as America's Rabbi, for his thoughts on the subject and whether it was wise to teach children beliefs before they have the ability to evaluate them for themselves. I wrote a book before I had a child called Teaching Your Children About God. And in it, I said that you shouldn't teach things that you later have to unteach. And yet, once I had a child, I ended up saying things that I had to unsay. The unteaching is very painful and very damaging to trust. We are both born with beliefs and learn them. That is, there are certain instinctive reactions, like we believe that falling is bad for us, um, but there are many beliefs that we pick up along the way, both unwittingly and also by education and indoctrination. right now. I am a firm believer that there are aliens out there. I am not a believer in global warming. I am a believer. I believe in exercise. I believe in bacon. I believe in two things. We believe. I believe I can fly. So what is belief? A belief is essentially some conclusion that our mind has come to that we hold to with some conviction. It could be very mild or it could be absolutely unshakable, the whole spectrum. That's Stephen Novella, a clinical neurologist at Yale who also hosts the podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. It's clearly important evolutionarily to the functioning of our brain that we form beliefs about the world. It's not really clear why we hold on to those beliefs so jealously, so firmly, but clearly psychologists have uncovered a host of mechanisms by which we form and maintain our beliefs. So we'll learn a little bit more about what causes beliefs to stick with us in a minute. But first, where did beliefs come from? And why do we have them at all? Michael Shermer on the origins of belief. Beliefs uh, are influenced by a number of different factors, where you happen to have been born, who your parents were, how you were raised, family dynamics and sibling influences, peer group influences, teachers, pop culture, books, films, and so forth. All these things come in that are just totally subjective, mo mostly emotionally based, and you glom onto an idea uh, or a belief. Then the brain goes into high gear to find evidence to support it. So our brains are more like lawyers than they are scientists designed to uh, find evidence and proof uh, for what you already believe and ignore the, the disconfirming evidence. This is called a confirmation bias. Once that happens, you then interpret information in that light. So if you believe in ghosts, for example, and you go to a haunted house, then everything will be interpreted through that. You know, a shaft of light, a little noise, a shadow is 
evidence that there's a ghost or a haunting. If you're a skeptic like me, you just interpret those noises as just random, anomalous, physical events. Why is it that smart people believe weird things? That's the more interesting question, because generally most of us think, well, people that believe weird things like ghosts or haunted houses or whatever, they're just ignorant or uneducated or stupid or unintelligent or whatever, but I would never believe that. Of course, that's not at all the case. Smart people believe weird things because they're really good at rationalizing beliefs that they arrived at for non-smart reasons. Once you've got the belief, then you just find the evidence to fit it. And this is true for all beliefs, religious, political, economic, ideological beliefs that we hold. Once you're committed to a particular belief, then it's hard to see evidence that contradicts it. Could that be right? Do we go around searching for evidence that our beliefs are true? If Michael's reasoning is correct, when did this mental tactic develop in our brains? Well, the idea that that why you would be committed to a belief probably has some evolutionary origins to it. That is, you have to um, react and behave in a certain way. So my thought experiment is, imagine you're a hominid on the plains of Africa three and a half million years ago. You're a little three foot high, small brained Australopithecine named Lucy. And you hear a rustle in the grass. Is it a dangerous predator or is it just the wind? Well, if you assume that it's a dangerous predator and it turns out it's just the wind, that's a type one error, a false positive. You thought the, the thing was connected to this and it wasn't, uh, but no harm. But if you think the rustle in the grass is just the wind and it turns out it's a predator, you're lunch. Congratulations, you've just been given a Darwin Award for taking yourself out of the gene pool early. Now, why can't you just sit in the grass and collect more data until you know for sure whether it's the wind or a dangerous predator? And the answer is that too will make you lunch because predators don't wait around for potential prey organisms to collect more data. So the default rule of thumb is just assume all rustles in the grass are dangerous predators just in case. So our brains are designed to make snap decisions, just make instant belief decisions as it were. And so getting it perfectly right is not what our brains are designed to do. Our brains are designed to run our bodies and to survive. According to Michael, the survival instinct is perhaps responsible for our tendency to make instant belief decisions with very little information to support them. Lucy's quick decision to associate a rustling in the weeds with the image of a dangerous predator may have helped her get the heck out of there, and she survived long enough to pass on those instincts to her offspring. So did we inherit the tendency to make quick decisions, usually supported by very little information from our ancestors? And if so, might we have solidified certain beliefs at an early age based on too little information? Andrew Newberg, the Director of Research in the Department of Integrative Medicine at Thomas Jefferson University, and Dr. James Giordano, Chief of Neuroethical Studies at Georgetown University, have both discovered this in their research. We never really know if what we're thinking on the inside is accurate with what's out there on the outside. So we construct ideas, beliefs, renditions of what that world is, and we hope that they're right. And as long as we're surviving, we say, okay, you know, it, it almost doesn't matter if our belief systems are accurate as long as they are adaptive and allow us to survive. That's exactly it. So what we do is we observe, we orient, and then we decide and we act. But our observations are also colored by certain predispositions. 
So very often those beliefs that are formed first may be very, very solid. That's not to say they can't be changed, and very often they are, but the solidity of those beliefs very often provides the sort of launch pad for the way we view, observe, and orient, and decide a whole host of things that we encounter, experience, and act on. Tom A. Sacker has written a book called The Business of Belief. The purpose of the book is to guide businesses on how to market to us based on our beliefs. People are moved by their present beliefs and their desires for something in the future, for a better experience. In essence, what we desire is what we end up believing, and what we believe drives our actions. Why people do what they do is because of their personal beliefs. That drives their behaviors. And that's why a lot of times we can't understand people's actions because we don't know what their beliefs are. I believe there is a God. Uh, in what form, I have no idea. Do I believe in an afterlife? I'd like to. Yes, I do believe in miracles. One of my personal miracles is that I was uh, resurrected from the dead. I do believe in aliens. I do not believe in aliens. Oh God, I'm way too old, jaded, and cynical to believe in things like magic. Well, I believe in the power of breathing, going to yoga, exercising, you know, the power of uh, spiritual healing. I believe in something bigger than all of us, because it works for me. I believe because I don't know how not to. Um, I believe humans can sustain themselves without taking on any calories. I guess it's called breatharianism. I believe in spirits. Because I've felt them, but I usually don't go around telling everybody that. Belief is a thing that keeps people together. I believe that you can do everything what you want to do, trying to raise my sons like this, you know, that they're, they are going to be what they want to be. Uh, everybody has to believe in, in something. Even people that do not believe in God believe in themselves. Everybody wants to fill the desires of their heart. I worship at the church of Yves Saint Laurent. Namaste and uh, a whole lot of vodka. <laughs> Just kidding. I believe belief is important for society because it's connected to hope. And hope is necessary so that you won't give up. Does our interest in spirituality and transcendence lure us into seeing signs and symbols and physical objects and phenomena? And do we attribute meaning to events that are merely coincidental? Back to Stephen Novella. Uh, one good example of how our brain constructs our internal model of reality is what we call pareidolia. Pareidolia is our brain's tendency to see patterns in, in random noise or random signals. So, for example, we see constellations in the random pattern of stars at night. You might see a face in the clouds. The face isn't really there. Your brain is just imposing a familiar pattern onto a random shape that it's seeing in a tree bark or a hillside or in a cloud. That's pareidolia. There's this crazy Jim Carrey movie called The Number 23, which takes the idea of pareidolia and runs wild with it. All I could think about was the number. I met you when I was... 23. And the day we met was? September 14th. 9-14. 14 plus 9 is? 23. Is it all just a coincidence? I don't know. The visual analogy 
is just a, an easy way to explain what our brains do for everything. We impose patterns for, on everything. Our brains are really good at pattern recognition and we seek out patterns everywhere, patterns in events, patterns in what people are doing and saying. I was born at 11, 12 p.m. 11 plus 12. 23. My birthday, 2, 3. Driver's license, social security number, it's all 23. And we put that together until we think we found out what's really going on. And once we think we see a pattern, it's hard to unsee it. It's hard to convince somebody that it's not real. It's just an illusion. The number. What does that mean? But then there's a critical thinking part of our brain that says, okay, but is the pattern real? And you need to have a balance between those two things, between seeing patterns and then reality testing to see if the patterns are actually real. I think most people realize that there isn't actually a face in the clouds. There's part of our brain that tells us that's random, that's not a real pattern. But then there's other patterns that people think are real, even when they're just as fictitious as the face in the cloud. If it's the face of the Mother Mary on a bank window, suddenly that's real because it has emotional significance for some people. Same phenomenon, but people, they will set aside their reality testing because now it's confirming a very tightly held belief system. You know, I've always been astounded by how strongly we hold on to our beliefs no matter how much evidence suggests otherwise. It seems we can convince ourselves of pretty much anything. In The Matrix, Morpheus told Neo everything he thought he knew was a virtual world constructed to keep him happy while he was turned into a battery. This isn't real. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. For you and me, there's no blue pill to help break us out of our convictions. Instead, we seem to reinforce and solidify our beliefs, and we find supporting evidence, we ignore disconfirming evidence, and we gravitate toward websites and news programs that mirror our views, and we ignore information that might prove us wrong. Why is this? Simone Wright, author of the book First Intelligence, Using the Science and Spirit of Intuition, is an intuitive coach and psychic to law enforcement who has helped police solve crimes. Her alternative approach involves addressing hardened beliefs on an emotional level. You can't go in and shift your belief systems by attacking it logically. You've got to go into that subconscious program and approach it like you would approach um, rebooting a computer. And that's done through um, emotional approaches, that's done through meditation, that's done through a softer, kinder, gentler approach other than trying to rip up the beliefs at the root. Stephen Novella again. Our brains have been likened to a noisy committee. It's a hundred people shouting for attention all at the same time. And every part of the brain seems to be contributing to this net effect of consciousness that we experience. So the emotions are in there, the analytical part is in there, the reality testing is in there, all vying for the final thing that you're going to believe. The emotional part seems to be very powerful. It's very hard to overcome that. And the more powerful the emotion, 
the greater its ability to completely override the analytical part of our brain. In fact, it will simply just enslave the analytical part of the brain in that motivated reasoning will take over, which means that you'll use all of your logic and intelligence to support your limbic system, the, the emotional part of your brain. And then you'll just be really convinced that what you want to believe is true because you spent all this time thinking about why it must be true, not realizing that the entire process is systematically biased towards arriving at the conclusion you want rather than something that honestly reflects reality. Julia Galef has an interesting explanation for why beliefs are at times unshakable. We get invested in our beliefs. They become part of our identities, especially if they have to do with politics or religion or our lifestyle, and that can make them very sticky. People are inclined to think of arguments and disagreements as battles, where I'm gonna go around with my shield up and my sword out to knock down ideas that disagree with me and protect myself from ideas that threaten me and my ideas. So trying on a different point of view feels sort of like popping up and hanging out in the enemy camp. Our brains function as like a belief machine with a story. And once we have a story, we want all the pieces to fit together and make sense. And so we happily will choose the details we need, manipulate our own memory, do whatever it takes, use fallacious logic, engage in motivated reasoning, confirmation bias where we select the information that supports our narrative until our narrative all hangs together. And then that's what we're going with. So there you have it, our first thoughts on belief. Throughout the series, we're going to investigate a multitude of topics as they pertain to beliefs. What follows now is a sneak preview of some of the pillars of belief, which include love, religion, health and diet, the power of brainwashing and marketing, and more. Just a heads up, you're about to hear a whole host of voices that we do not identify, but they'll all be introduced throughout the course of the series. Let's start with love. Do you believe in love? Love is one of our strongest human urges, making it front and center in our belief spectrum. It's one of the first beliefs we have, changing our lives and mentally overriding most of our sensibilities. Is there a bigger reason why we are meant to love? Is it more than hormones and attachment? What's the purpose of love and why do we love? And for the Darwinians out there, is there a scientific explanation for love? Truth is, actually, I'm in love. I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy, asking him to love her. The question, what is love, it's a funny thing because you'll get a very different answer depending on who you ask. If someone falls in love and they try and explain it, it sounds ridiculous, right? You're trying to put something in words which is not capturable. We have poets, artists, that all have these very similar and yet different overwhelming representations. But really, when it comes down to it from the science point of view, love is simply a cascade of chemicals in your brain that help you bond with another person. As the poet Terence, the Roman poet, once said, he said, the less my hope, the hotter my love. 
2,000 years later, we can explain this in the brain. That brain system, the reward system for wanting, for motivation, for craving, for focus becomes more active when you can't get what you want. In this case, life's greatest prize, an appropriate mating partner. I love you. You? You had me at hello. Romantic love is one of the most powerful sensations on earth. Almost nobody gets out of love alive. It's a lot like drug addiction. And in fact, the same areas of the brain that are involved with drug addiction are also involved with love and lust. And so when you first meet somebody and you feel all those powerful feelings, it can be very hard to resist. And then if you do have sex, more chemicals are released and it becomes, you become like a drug seeker looking for an, the next hit. I was diagnosed as a love addict. You don't want to marry a psychopath, but somebody with a couple of the traits could be very useful. Anthropologists have found evidence of romantic love in 170 societies. They've never found a society that did not have it. So my final statement is, love is in us. It's deeply embedded in the brain. Our challenge is to understand each other. Thank you. Well, that gives you a glimpse of love in the brain. Next up, religion. How do we use, employ, and engage religion in our lives? Does belief in a God make us happier and healthier? Are communities that are galvanized around faith more successful? We're interested in exploring these questions. Our episode on religion gives a voice to those with strong religious beliefs, but also questions whether religions can take beliefs too far. Time to go to church. Faith is essentially believing something without evidence to show that it's definitely true. We could look at the opiate receptors in the brain and we could find out whether or not uh, the, the statement by Marx that religion is the opiate of the masses is really true. Religious traditions bring meaning to life because they give you several things. One, a community. Two, a tradition so that you understand that other people have been where you've been. And three, a sense that all of this is not futile, that ultimately there's a purpose to human existence. Even if we're not capable of grasping it, the conviction that there is purpose, I think, animates our days and, and lightens our load. What you believe in can have profound changes in your body. So whether you repeat Hail Mary, full of grace, Ave Maria, or Om, Shalom, or One, you change your genes activity. These things make people feel good. They make people feel good when they're doing them alone. They make people feel good when they're doing them together. And they create a whole host of group commonality processes in which people can bond. I like that bumper sticker, I'm a militant agnostic. I don't know and you don't either. And that's what we come up against against some of these really hard problems. It's just, I don't know. In science, we need to train people to say, it's okay to say, I don't know, and just leave it at that. Don't invoke a God or multiple universes or whatever that we don't know. I mean, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Let's just say, it's okay to say, I don't know. We've all witnessed the ever-growing power of ISIS and the way it tries to implant beliefs inside the brains of its followers. 
Horrendous acts such as 9-11, the more recent attacks in Paris and Brussels, and the kidnapping of 200 young girls in northern Nigeria are just some examples of horrific acts triggered by vicious leaders voicing extremist beliefs. History also shows us there are charismatic leaders who take advantage of their followers, causing them to harm others, steal, or give their lives over to a radical way of thinking. The real question here is how. What does it take to overwhelm the mind of an individual with an influential belief that leads to action? How do politicians, marketers, and fundamentalists all take advantage of the intoxicating force of an idea to prey upon human instincts and behavior? Well, the implanting of ideas is just knowing what a group of people thinks. Not necessarily what they think, but what they feel. So you appeal to their emotions. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. If you say something enough, people may ultimately start to believe it. The neurons that fire together wire together. The more that any thought or belief or idea is focused on in the brain, then that strengthens those neural connections. If I were to say to you, the United States economy is bad, the United States economy is bad, it's bad, it's bad, then eventually your brain is going to start to think the economy is bad. People are marketing ideas, products, politics, uh, governments, religions, all of these things, they have a sense that there are individual differences. So you don't try to get everybody. If you form a cult, you, you know you're gonna have this very small group of people that you can appeal to. You're not gonna appeal to everybody. Allahu Akbar, Once you wake up, you realize you have lost all of your freedom your freedom to think, your freedom to talk, your freedom to look, your freedom to read. You know, just everything is controlled and awful. That's who I was when I got in Scientology, one of those robots, and I escaped out. Most people will just hear something on TV or on the news and they're spoon-fed a belief. When people ask me what I'm wearing, I tell them, a vino. Celebrities are a type of authority that people believe. Clearly they fill some kind of a role as an authority, as a charismatic leader. We recognize them from the TV and that touches something in us psychologically. They appeal to their emotions. You know what they're angry about. You know what they want. If you look at the entire brain as being a Rubik's Cube, you have two hemispheres. But really, the strip down the middle part is another hemisphere. That system is used to look at your own inner truth when you're talking to yourself. It probably drives belief more than anything. That's some pretty heavy stuff. So let's move on to a lighter topic, diet. Is there a benefit to thinking an apple a day keeps the doctor away? Or that organic foods will prevent you from being exposed to those scary toxins? How healthy is all of this advice, really? It seems everywhere we look, someone is touting a miracle cure or method to improve our health. How can we possibly know what to believe? Are we investing too much trust in these experts and corporations that are trying to make a buck? How can we really know what works and what's merely a hyperbolic claim? The bottom line is, much of this unsolicited health advice is unproven. Over 150 million Americans regularly consume dietary supplements as a means of improving and maintaining their health. People tend to think that something that comes from a plant is going to be safer than something that was conjured up in a test tube. Just because something is natural doesn't mean it's good for you. There are a lot of things out there that are natural 
arsenic, that's natural. There's 55,000 dietary supplements in the market. Fewer than 1% of them have any sort of safety profile. It's really unregulated. And so many of these homeopathic and other alternative medicines are able to make all kinds of claims about the efficacy of their products. And nobody is really looking into this and saying what's true and what's not true regarding their claims. These things should be supported by evidence. And if they're not, the public has every right to know that these things don't work. Juicing, cleansing, and fad diets continue to grow in popularity. They are detoxifying our bodies 24-7 all day long. They're pushing out pathogens and expelling pollutants and detoxifying chemicals. If you've got the choice between eating an, an organic apple or a Twinkie, I mean, the, the, the Paleolithic man didn't have exposure to Twinkies. So if you just eat congruent to the way you're genetically designed, your chances of being healthier are probably going to be better than if you're eating things that you were never designed to eat. I think consumers are going to start looking at this and say, okay, yeah, you told me it's low fat, you told me it's non-GMO, and you told me it's a... And I'm so confused, I, all I want is a cupcake and a soft drink. Dr. Raz has become one of America's most trusted docs. They criticized the talk show host for describing untested weight loss supplements as magical. Now I've got the number one miracle in a bottle to burn your fat. What's so wrong with that? Name me one case where a man named Oz claimed mystical powers and led people horribly astray. Name me one case. You can't do it. Celebrity diet advice, the safest bet is to just run for the nearest exit. Joining us now, Suzanne Summers. She now has a new book out called Sexy Forever, How to Fight Fat After 40. And when I sit in restaurants, I kind of look at people and I go, oh, they've got a gluten intolerance. Oh, they got a thyroid problem. Wow. A lot of them are completely crazy. <laughs> Do you think you could stay awake through an episode devoted to science? We hope so, because we're living in an exciting time for it. And even though it can be hard to understand the complexities of scientific studies, some of the new discoveries are mind-blowing. Several of our upcoming episodes hope to make scientific thinking more accessible and show how it can be used as a tool to understand the mechanics of belief, more specifically, measuring the brain in action. I've learned that the world is 4,500 million years old. If you're very religious, then it's not 4,500 million years old, it's 6,000 years old. One of these is not correct, <laughs> using simple logic here. Now, the science boys, they've got anoraks, they've got glasses, they've got Bunsen burners and Petri dishes. It's the religious boys, they've got a book. The whole notion of faith and science is all about how do we know what we know. Science is about investigating and answering questions that can be answered by science. Faith deals with issues that are outside the realm of science. We'd like to understand the effects of private, spiritual, or religious practice on the brain. How does that change the brain? Does it change the way the brain is wired? What matters is not what you think, but how you think. And all the discoveries that have been made and all the enlightenment that's come to us is from the scientific and the philosophical method. The ultimate basis of the scientific method is what I like to refer to as a passion for inquiry. It means we just got to keep asking questions and, and keep exploring the world in as many different ways as we can. It's hard to wrap our own mind around how a, a mind can emerge from just a hunk of flesh in our skulls. But neuroscience clearly tells us that everything about your thoughts, beliefs, moods, behaviors can be explained by parts of the brain communicating with itself 
we can influence your beliefs, we can influence your personality, we can alter anything that you think of as your mind by altering the brain. Some people think that the illusion of our conscious self is so powerful that we can't imagine it's just the meat inside our heads. In fact, you might argue that our brains evolved to create this illusion that we are more than just the brain. Regardless of the facts and arguments that science presents, none of it is valuable to us without critical thinking, which is the means whereby we question and analyze the world around us. Our series hopes to inspire and achieve a whole new generation of critical thought. The owners of this country, they don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interests. That's right. People seem to have given up on critical thinking and have given up responsibility for their own conscience, which is what I grew up believing in, that I'm responsible for how I behave and how I think and what I believe in. And nobody can change that. Critical thinking is essentially the ability to think carefully about things, to examine your own thought processes, to decide what information is reliable, what information is not reliable, and to arrive at beliefs which are likely to be true, as opposed to beliefs which are just comforting or what somebody else wants you to believe. So that concludes our look ahead at the wild kaleidoscope of beliefs. If you're now wondering whether anything is real or grounded or absolutely true, that's good. We want you to wonder. None of us can be held directly accountable for most of our beliefs. After all, most of them were instilled in us by others. But we can examine our beliefs and question, is this one good for me or not? Does this one make any sense? Or is it just there like that old tape player in the closet? We're not gonna preach. This is not a religious series, but we are going to do our very best to get you to question your thinking, to do some mental sightseeing and take a belief inventory. As you listen to the series, you might be reassured of your existing beliefs, and that's fine. Or perhaps you might want to do a little spring cleaning, or maybe even go on a belief shopping spree. That's entirely up to you. Our goal here is to get you to re-examine your beliefs, and perhaps in the process to better understand yourself, your neighbors, your family members, your coworkers, and maybe even those people from distant countries who believe very different things. In the next series of episodes, we're going to start our journey, and we hope you'll come along. But be forewarned, there's no turning back. Once you open your mind to deep inquiry, it could change your life. So we'd like to thank you for listening, and we'd like to thank our production team, Christina Sorge for producing the episode along with assistant producers Georgia Cohen, Mike Scally, and Simone Jantz, editing by Ollie Riley-Smith, sound design and musical score by Andy Sorge and Scott McKay-Gibson, and all of our experts and guests who brought wisdom to this episode. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and got something out of it. If so, then please rate us favorably and come back for more. You can visit our website, mbelief.com, that's the letter M followed by the word belief with an F, dot com, for more information. Or find us wherever podcasts are available. I'm Joe Sorge. Thank you for listening.